I'm Maria Bat. Welcome to Sidewalk Talk. Um, we have a really impressive Buffalo native here with us today. We actually met her through another client and we were doing a testimonial video for her. And as we're interviewing her to hear about what her experience was like working with this company, we just really wanted to dig a little bit deeper. So today I have Imana Albatidi with me. Hello, welcome. Hello. It's Thank so you. good to see you again. Thank you. Um, so we learned a little bit about you. We kind of scratched the surface. Um, so we got a lot to talk about today. But you're a Buffalo native, and like so many kids that graduate from college, were like, this place is on fire. I'm getting the heck out of here. So tell us, after graduating from UB Law School, um, where did your path lead you? So I was almost that obnoxious kid upon graduation mm -hmm. told my folks, you know, I'm not coming back. I want to go experience working in uh, larger markets. So I actually did uh, practice in the downstate New York region uh, for some time, and I represented an insurance company. So it was insurance fraud defense work. It was pretty interesting. It was during that whole uh, theatrics about stop and squat where there were staged accidents, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And unfortunately, it was increasing premiums for legitimate uh, you know, insureds. So it was something that I felt like I could get behind. Um, but then I moved to Chicago uh, and I practiced there for about uh, seven years. Mm -hmm. And most recently, uh, I moved back from the DC area where I was uh, in about, for about the last seven years as well. That's pretty cool. So, okay, why did you choose insurance law? I mean, it's not necessarily like sexy or anything mm -hmm. like that. How did your, why did you choose that? Well, it kind of fell into my lap. Uh, I think that I, even thematically, have always tried to stay true to my interests. And so I've always been interested in, um, you know, healthcare and, um, you know, just advocacy against uh, things that would just basically manipulate the public at large. Mm -hmm. So when you're referencing, you know, insurance fraud, um, who are ultimately the victims? It's those legitimate premium uh, payers, right? Those insureds who now have to pay an arm and a leg because of the fraud and the manipulation by, you know, some bad actors. So that was always something I felt like I could get behind. But then it brought me into this scope of healthcare. Okay, so these were, for example, in Chicago, I was representing insurance companies, but their insureds weren't people. Their insureds were large pharmaceutical companies, okay? Mm -hmm. And so when you would have an entity that would submit a claim to an insurer saying, oh, I'm getting sued, because of you know an adverse outcome that resulted mm -hmm. from a drug or something that I put forward, when you start to see that trend and you're the outside counsel for that insurance company, you start saying, mm, too bad, so sad. No, we have to look into this and see whether or not this outcome was expected or intended. Because legally, uh, if it was expected or intended, you do have grounds for a disclaimer of coverage where you basically could say, sorry, you're going to have to be the one to bear the payment or the results of uh, your liability. Right. So, I mean, in so many people, whether it's, and it's funny to think of an insurance company as the little guy, but in that situation, they kind of were, right? But not every patient is strong enough to advocate for themselves. And I mean, that's really where you come in. And I think it makes so much sense that, I mean, you need to be a real lion, um, to stand up for that person, especially in healthcare. I mean, you're in such a vulnerable position. Usually you're not, um, 
you know, there because you're having a great day. You know, it's a it's a woman who has cancer who's not getting the coverage that she needs. They're not going to give her that PET scan because she already had too many. You know, they need a lion on their side. They need somebody to advocate for them and to lead them. And I think it's really fitting now that you've moved back to Buffalo and you're leading the medical society. So you're kind of right. doing the same thing for the doctors now, right? And, and that's just it. And the patient population. I feel like, you know, the mission is ultimately, right, we're a physician membership organization, but ultimately the mission of the medical society is to enhance uh, patient outcomes and to enhance healthcare in our region. And I do feel blessed to be in this seat during this time, especially particularly relevant on the heels of a global pandemic, uh, because you'd think that if you are doing it right, folks are going to lean on a med society, both the patient population and the physician population. Mm -hmm. Just a step back, right before I moved here, I was a risk director and a patient safety officer at a large health system, actually largest healthcare system in the state of Maryland, okay? And uh, I can tell you from sitting in that seat and witnessing firsthand the when an adverse outcome occurs, and then I'm brought to the table to identify from a proactive standpoint, how can we mitigate this? How can we prevent this from happening again? What were the root causes? Who were the stakeholders? And how could we collaborate so this does not happen again? Um, I can tell you that having had that vantage point, I do feel like I have been able to leverage uh, my background to serve effectively in this current role as the executive director of the Med Society. Right, so even if you're just you know, it starts with you representing one person or one company or one doctor, but I mean, it spreads to everybody. I mean, you're really making change for everybody, each person that's going to come after that so that these things don't happen again. Precisely. And what you try to accomplish with what I was characterizing as a root cause analysis, right, mm -hmm. is to create a more proactive versus reactive risk management culture. Basically, the same thing that I'm hoping we could create here in Western New York in terms of a more proactive approach to patient care instead of a reactive one. And sitting in this seat, I've had the opportunity to meet very, very interesting people and to be privy to stories from the patient population, asking really, really credible and you know compelling questions. Why? Do I have pancreatic cancer? And I only found out when I was at stage four. Why is there so much research and effort and energy put into preventative measures for other cancers, but mm -hmm. not pancreatic cancer? And and she's right. And with, you know, unfortunately that particular patient, you know, we hope that we can make a tangible impact for her. But I think that what you're also hoping is that you can try to prevent these kinds of things from happening in the future. And so in reference to some of the inspiring people I've met while sitting in this seat, um, there's a gentleman named Adam Utley, and he is actually an immunologist. Uh, he got his PhD in immunology from Roswell, and he decided to park it here in Buffalo mm -hmm. and create a startup, right? And it's called Immunion. And basically what he does is precisely what we're trying to do, right? He, he, he takes a proactive approach, says if you're at high risk, you know, obviously these are hereditary conditions. Mm -hmm. We can take out your good cells right now. We could store them, very affordable, $30 a month basically is what he had said. 
And then we could infuse them back into you if, God forbid, something goes left. And you actually, they he gave me a case study of a young girl named Emily who had stage 4 lymphoma. And she actually has been cancer-free for 10 years now. Which is incredible because lymphoma is one of those where, you know, it's, it's going to come back. You know, it's how it could be a year. It could be five. It could be whatever. Um, but there are options there. And you're right. Like, not everybody talks about pancreatic cancer. And, and it's important to talk about, you know, everything. But... We're aware of breast cancer. It's easy to put on a pink ribbon, but there are so many issues, so many things going on that people aren't shining spotlights on and putting it into the just the regular conversation. And if there's something, if there's anything, the pandemic, and even the development of the vaccine showed mm -hmm. us, when this country prioritizes, right, the development of something clinically, it happens. I, I, I When I was sitting in that seat as a, outside counsel for the insurance company that represented a pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. I became well-versed in the FDA clinical trial process mm -hmm. and how lengthy it was and how exhaustive it was. And look how quick we were able to all, and I think that's a beautiful story, that we were all able to be all hands on deck and create this vaccine. So we can do it. It's just right. about where we're gonna dedicate priorities. I mean, in, in Honestly, with respect to the vaccine, I have to say that it was a huge pull effort by the federal government. Mm -hmm. I, I believe it was some $10 billion that was put into it. You typically do not have that kind of seed money going into right. clinical trials. And, and understandably, uh, pharmaceutical companies aren't going to want to fund a phase three trial until they really know whether or not it's going to work, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you typically have those kinds of challenges. But yes, I still think it's unacceptable that for pancreatic cancer patients who found out too late in the game because we aren't focusing on the diagnostic criteria, that they should be told, oh, good news, you know, the survival rate has now gone from 10% to this year now 11%. I can't imagine, I have two small children, ever feeling like, and because basically I'd flip that paradigm, that I have every single day an 89% chance of dying mm -hmm. within the next five years, of not seeing my children grow up, you know, to see, make it to 15, to make it to 17. Um, I can't think of anything more crushing. And I think that that's what's also a silver lining about the pandemic is that we've all leaned on each other. And mm -hmm. I think it's reflected, you know, I think a positive side about the human condition. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing folks now talk more about burnout, about mm -hmm. unacceptable toxicity in the workplace, about, you know, um, creating a line for work-life balance. And, you know, if you look on LinkedIn, you'll see, you know, folks are praising other folks that are there on a conference call and having to also juggle, you know, right. childcare demands. I, I think the pandemic has humanized the public. And I think that that's what's great for organized medicine. Mm -hmm. I think precisely in my role, this is why I think physicians are so much more relevant or what they have to say is so much more relevant in terms of shaping current policy. Um, I will say very, you know, with a lot of pride that Western New York doctors in particular, mm -hmm. there's a lot of momentum. I don't know if it's a cultural thing where they all are all hands on deck and want to collaborate, but we have now some 1,600 physician members of the Erie County Med Society, and you see that power in numbers. Because what mm -hmm. we do here is advocate to reshape policy and create, um, you know, better uh, reform 
uh, conditions for uh, the public at large. So, for example, one thing that I would consider to be a win, a preliminary win, but I think it's important to look at these things from an optimistic standpoint, is the Gold Card Act. Mm -hmm. We're trying to replicate a Texas statute that was actually bipartisan, that went into effect last year, and basically tells insurers that if you have approved a procedure 90% or more of the time, including instances where you've denied it but then mm -hmm. approved it on appeal, too bad, so sad, you mm -hmm. can no longer require prior authorization from that provider for that procedure. I mean, and it's for a, a distinct amount of time and then there's a reevaluation. But think about what that does about taking away the administrative burdens for patients. For example, what you just mentioned, mm -hmm. A patient with a certain stage of cancer shouldn't be asking from, if their oncologist is saying you need a PET scan, right? it shouldn't be up to a claims adjuster to veto that. Right, somebody in an office who probably isn't a doctor, you know, and is just trying to fill out, okay, this metric, this metric, up, oh, you're over your limit, and, you know, that's it. And think about it, if prior auth is 90% or more of the time approved, this is actually a service to insurers too because you're spending a lot of time mm -hmm. on, it, on an administrative task, which time is money because you're paying staff to do that, on something that is pointless because ultimately it gets overturned. Ultimately, it's going to be honored. But for me, it's problematic because that's the last thing a patient needs when they're already looking at a terminal diagnosis mm -hmm. is to feel like, mother, may I? They have to ask for permission every step of the way. And then who is really shaping their care? Is it a claims adjuster mm -hmm. or is it the physician who they've trusted with their lives? So, you know, I think that there's a lot that we can do. And I think that is what is precisely inspiring about this role. We can together with collaboration, make a tangible impact on enhancing patient outcomes. You know, think of that person with pancreatic cancer or anyone else with a terminal illness. Think of that administrative burden of having to process all of the EOBs and, okay, this isn't a bill, but then I'm going to be held responsible for yeah. this. Why can't we just make that simpler for everyone? Why can't there be a concierge service to provide, you know, okay, mm -hmm. look, the last thing you have to worry about is insurance coverage, is where you're going to have to pick up the tab, right? Um, I think that that would play a huge role into wellness and into perhaps um, helping somebody uh, overcome these kinds of um, health obstacles. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting to be in the seat right now, and I think that it's very empowering. We are now in a position, like I was referencing with the Gold mm -hmm. Card Act, Senator Breslin currently has turned it into, I have it memorized, Bill 8299, I guess. <laughs> he, he is uh, Democratic's uh, sponsor of the bill. And we had Advocacy Day, March 8th, at the Med Society, where we had 10 face-to-face -face Zoom meetings with our local legislators, where we allowed our doctors to sit front and center and give them their you know, their stories, right? Tell them the hassles, the burdens of prior authorization. And that same day on March 8th, we heard from the Senior Legislative Affairs Director in Albany that Senator Gallivan, Republican, mm -hmm. right, from our region, because of our what they had heard, he had heard from our doctors, had decided to co-sponsor that bill, making it a bipartisan bill, mm -hmm. which I think is very refreshing to see during yeah. these times. You know what I mean? Like, especially with how polarized politics has become, mm -hmm. to be able to have some kind of, you know, look, this is our common denominator. 
at the end of the day, it's the human condition. We right. all want better outcomes for our patient population. So that's exciting. Yeah, and I think my, one of my biggest takeaways from everything that we've been discussing has been being proactive and also just because that's the way something has been for years and years and years does not mean that that is how it has to continue to be. So I, mean, I was at a um, doctor's appointment not too long ago and it's a big office and I'm walking down it had like, um, you know, our founding doctors and like board of directors and stuff and I'm walking down and it's, they all look the same, you know, a older gentleman, usually white. And then there was like one woman at the end and changing the way I think diversifying the team so that it looks more like everybody's community and and being more proactive about things. I know you guys are working on bringing in younger members and working with students so that way they are already, they understand the importance of being a part of the medical society. And, and I mean, your leadership looks different now. So talk a little bit about the changes that you guys are making. Mm -hmm. And um, like you said, it's exciting to be in this seat. So what's your mission right now? Why are you making all of these changes? Well, ultimately, thematically, we just want to enhance care, right? Patient outcomes and the quality of care in our region. And you touched upon something that this is precisely how we could do it. When I say that it's inspiring because you realize that actually if you collaborate and do it right, you can make a tangible impact. Mm -hmm. So we have collaborated with UB Med School, okay? If there's anything anyone has seen during the pandemic, it's that there were some instances where you were walking into a local hospital and you were parking it in an emergency room for some 20 hours, mm -hmm. right? That is a serious, throughput issue that is almost characteristic to the throughput of a hospital in a developing country. And honestly, it's not any clinician's fault. It's because we had a shortage of clinicians, right? And so together, how can we overcome this access to care issue? How can we incentivize young docs who graduate and to remain in the region upon graduation? How can we overcome perhaps the biggest pain point among my physician members, which is recruitment? and mm -hmm. retention. If historically a physician was paid less in Buffalo for doing the exact same procedure as a physician in Rochester, when they have comparable cost of living, good luck. Mm -hmm. You can't expect anyone right. to stay in this region. So you have to look at issues like increasing physician reimbursement, right? But when you look at even the younger population, UB Med students, for example, they have a new, very, very exciting uh, dean, uh, Alison Brashear. She's a world-renowned neurologist, came here from UC Davis in December. I had the pleasure of uh, meeting her in person at a doctor's dinner recently. Um, in attendance was Dr. Nancy Nielsen. She's like a legend, basically. She was the first female physician president of the Medical Society of Erie County and only the second female physician president of the AMA. So mm -hmm. it's a huge deal. Buffalo doctors do have a considerable mark, right? But what you touched upon is I think one of the most important objectives that the Med Society ought to have as it tries to pivot and create this more diverse, equitable, inclusive mm -hmm. uh, medical society. And, and so with UB Med School, we have basically said, look, membership is free for med students. 
Why wouldn't you want to be part of organized medicine? Mm -hmm. Okay. Why wouldn't you want to be introduced into an opportunity to liaise with seasoned professionals so that you're not only getting up to speed on the latest among those folks who are the most experienced in their roles so from a mentorship standpoint, but then think of all the networking opportunities. And then you're resolving the biggest pain point for these physicians mm -hmm. who are saying, my biggest problem is trying to recruit or retain talent. If we, which is what we're doing right now, can create a pipeline, a real meaningful physician mentorship and networking opportunity by bringing in enough UB med students while they're still med students before they even decide on match day which kind of practice area they want to go to. And we align them with seasoned doctors here mm -hmm. who unfortunately, due to the pandemic and the strains of the pandemic, we're finding that the most seasoned professionals are opting to retire some 10 years early. Mm -hmm. So before they leave, why not lean on them to get their institutional knowledge, their historical knowledge, and create, you know, basically more talented doctors, right, as well as create networking opportunities? Because I can even say myself, if I had left UB Law with a job lined up in Buffalo, I have heard right now mm -hmm. from medical practices saying, I don't know who we're going to give our book of business to. We want to all retire, but we have this client base and, you know, patient base rather. We don't know where we're going to, you know, refer them all to. What a wonderful problem for a young grad. Mm -hmm. Really? I'm going to inherit your entire right. client base? And so similarly, I think the same way for attorneys, right? It, really? If I had heard from a law firm saying, oh, you know, I've got this book of business right. and I don't want to be, you know, in practice anymore. Of course, you would consider that a blessing. So it's all about hitting it on all marks to try to not just, uh, you know, create these networking and mentorship opportunities so folks are more inclined to remain in the region. But if you really have a meaningful mentorship relationship, mm -hmm. you are going to bring that young doctor up to speed from the most seasoned professional before they bow out and decide mm -hmm. to retire. And that's how ultimately we overcome our regional access to care issues and we enhance the quality of care in our region. I can tell you, because Buffalo is so up and coming right now, because it's basically, there was a bank rate article in mm -hmm. January of 2022, that said it sandwiched Buffalo in terms of hottest housing markets with LA, San Diego, San Francisco, and Boston. Okay? Remarkable. And remarkable. It's a, <laughs> remarkable. Right. But but it's it's refreshing, but also that means what? Folks are gonna have their eyes on Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Seed money's gonna have their eyes on Buffalo. And when you think about a bustling city that's on, I think, a trajectory to perhaps be as successful as we were around the turn of the century. Um, that's really exciting because that's, it's no coincidence that when a city is doing well, they're thriving in terms of their health care, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, there are entities like there, this one called Brook Health, okay? They just entered into an opportunity with ECMC. And what I know about ECMC, okay, Erie County Medical Center, is that they service some 75% of the underserved population. Mm -hmm. And here we have this entity, Brook Health, that is now providing remote access, right, to patient care. So like a remote pulse ox, a remote um, blood pressure monitor, okay? Mm -hmm. And what they do is assist the primary care doctor 
Because we understand that doctors can't control outcomes in between wellness visits. Right. How often do you even go to a wellness visit, right? Mm -hmm. And think of how much you do in the interim. Really, are you gonna, you know, prevent a doctor is gonna prevent you from eating chips at 11 o'clock at night, you know, right. watching TV, these unhealthy habits. So what Brooke Health does, and these folks that are coming into the region with resources, is that they connect these primary care providers with nurses, and with these remote monitoring tools so that they have a line of sight to their patient population in between visits and ultimately can enhance the patient outcomes. So it's just really exciting to see that there are stakeholders that are mm -hmm. in our region that really want to turn things around. I will tell you, we just celebrated our 200th anniversary last year, which was kind of lackluster because, of course, <laughs> our 200th gala had to be canceled due to the Delta right. variant. You right? virtually had a glass of champagne. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think we were all standing here, and it was just like a Zoom. <laughs> Literally, I'm not kidding. And, you know, it was unfortunate, but in prep for that event, I had come here from the D.C. area when the Erie County Med Society was only 100, was 199 years old. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a big deal, right? And I was like, wow, you know, it's one of the oldest operating med societies in the country. That's awesome. And so there was a physician, Dr. Stacy Watt, very talented anesthesiologist, who is part of our leadership now, mm -hmm. um, who said, let's write a book. So we co-wrote a book about it, right? And it's basically a glorified picture book that takes the reader through uh, all of the physicians who've made an impact or were part of the fabric of medicine here in Western New York. And I can't tell you how much I learned from that. Um, one thing I will definitely say that is optimistic is that in 1903, we had a health commissioner named Ernest Wend. He, during his tenure, made it so that Buffalo had the lowest death rate of any city of its size in the world at that time. But that's no coincidence that we were also home to the Pan American Exposition at that time, right? So you'd mm -hmm. see this thematic, these correlations when you're thriving in healthcare and then when you see a successful city, which I do really see come to fruition right now in Buffalo. But one takeaway that was kind of upsetting from the book is, I will say, out of 200 years, we only had six female physician presidents. And that's what we're trying to change. Mm -hmm. We've now bifurcated our bylaws locally, right? Mm -hmm. So now we have a secretary and a treasurer. We now, after 200 years, have a 50-50% ratio of male and female doctors in our executive board in terms of our officers, our finance committee. And this September, in 201 years, we will be marking only the seventh female physician president in 201 years to the Met Society, and that will be anesthesiologist Rose Birkin. So it's it's really exciting. It's exciting, it's incredible. And there's um, a lot of you know talk right now about um, TV shows and um, movies and getting more people to look like other, more trans kids on there, more you know black, more Indian, whatever. Um, because if you see somebody that looks more like you, you're more comfortable to, oh, okay, I could I could join that. Mm -hmm. I could learn that. I can go ahead and, and be a part of the change that this organization is making. So having more women, having more minorities that are doctors, that are strong, that are leaders in the community, a part of this, is really only going to enhance and grow what the mission of what you guys are doing. Right, because it's not only going to inspire young minorities who see someone who's also parallel to them, perhaps to then say, look, I can do that. Perhaps mm -hmm. I'm going to aspire to be 
you know, a physician. It also, we are all patients. Mm -hmm. It also brings ease to the patient population when you are looking at a clinician and that clinician looks like you. Yeah. And you are going to feel more forthcoming, more comfortable just, you know, being in this um, space of sharing perhaps things that are not you know, the most comfortable to share. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also important. I think it also plays a direct role in enhancing patient outcomes because a doctor can only do so much based on what they're made aware of, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's very encouraging. It's a positive thing. Um, there's just so much going on right now, especially in our region, that's really mm -hmm. exciting. Uh, I don't, I can even tell you that things that you wouldn't even expect that the Med Society would perhaps even think favorably of Right. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, you and I were talking before. Right. And I was telling you about um, OCM. Right. Mm -hmm. The Office of Cannabis Management, the legalization of of cannabis. You'd think, oh, my gosh, the clinicians are going to have a real hard time with this. Right. The Med Society isn't going to want to be part of this messaging. But then when you actually think about mm -hmm. it critically. Right. What does this mean? OK. First of all, we know that the legalization of cannabis did not create access to marijuana, right. okay? It was the second most widely used substance for decades. What it did do by bringing it under regulatory control is create access to safer alternatives. And so now you have lab testing, mm -hmm. you have proper labeling, you know what is in these ingredients, okay? Especially in this age of edibles, right? Where we don't even know in this age of fentanyl what could be put into products. So of course, from even a public health patient safety standpoint, you do want that brought under mm -hmm. the auspices of regulatory control because you do want to be able to know precisely what's in a product right. and that it is explicitly labeled so it doesn't get into the wrong hands, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I think there's things that folks could even think may not be related to our mission that actually are are and that ought to be because we should be championing public health, patient safety, and ultimately I think that brings us closer to our mission to, you know, enhance healthcare in our region, which is huge for the success of our city. Absolutely. I could probably talk to you for another two hours. <laughs> But I'll try to be respectful of your time and wrap it up a little bit. Um, what do you what do you wish that patients and doctors knew about healthcare and where do you think that we're going to be going in the next 200 years? Wow, that's a great question. With collaboration, right? Think about any kind of company that says, well, we work in silos, right? Operationally, they don't do well. And I think that what I've seen is that if the patients and physicians realized just how much we could accomplish with genuine collaboration, mm -hmm. with real transparency, not operating in silos, not duplicating efforts, not reinventing the wheel, leaning on each other's outcomes thus far, and truly in a transparent way coming forward and saying, look, just like we're trying to do with this partnership with UB Med School, we can incentivize young grads mm -hmm. to remain in the region. And, and this is ultimately what I tell our doctors. This is why we are growing, not shrinking, when you would expect that some trade organizations are suffering and that they're dying out. No, we're actually growing because it's almost like I tell doctors, and of course this could come off as self-serving initially, but it really does make sense from a logic standpoint. Why wouldn't you join? 
organized medicine? Why wouldn't you join, you know, a medical society that would allow you to streamline your position mm-hmm. and give you power in numbers? You know, if there's anything the pandemic has shown doctors, it's that if you're not going to be the ones to shape the fate of your profession, lawyers will be happy to do it for you. Mm-hmm. And look at these regulations that have come down where I will hear from doctors the very next day after an executive order. Are you kidding me? This doesn't even operationally sound. And it's because the folks who are making the policy have no line of sight to the operational implications of a clinically acute setting, right? So that's why. Why are you going to be so academically talented to get into med school, residency, fellowship, and then let someone else from another profession shape the fate of your profession? Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately that ought to be the takeaway, that together we can do more and we can make a tangible impact to enhance outcomes and healthcare in our region. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marissa. <laughs> for spending the time with me. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. And um, that was Sidewalk Talk. <laughs>